This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everyone. We Hashem have this course to hear from Rabbi Gladstein to give us a little bit of insight about Tishbab. Rabbi Gladstein, I know that you put out a book about your grandfather and uh, about Tishbab the three weeks. If you can share a little bit with us stories about your grandfather, that could be a physic, something that we can pick up. Thank you, uh, Rabbi Nachum. Uh, until, you know, we don't, we don't extend She'ela Shalom on Tishabav, but uh, it's a cover to be on your program. Um, to me, the stories about my grandfather are always meaningful, but especially on Tishabav. Many of the stories have become uh, widespread now uh, in the aftermath of his patira. Many of them have been written in the newspapers, magazines, but it's still worthwhile to maybe just say over a few of them. Um, one of them that I can never hear enough is that after the war, he was, uh, he was interviewed by the secular media and they said, Rabbi, you were eyewitness to the brutality of your people the massacre of your family, of your city. You saw blood flowing through the streets like rivers. Rabbi, at any point in time, did you lose faith in the Torah? Did you ever lose faith in your God? And my grandfather responded, did I lose faith? Of course I lost faith. I lost faith in man. How could a civilized society like Germany shed their conscience, conscience and massacre and innocent people. While at night they were li- listening to a symphony and listening to orchestra, during the day they would massacre and brutalize thousands. How could civilized countries, d- democratic countries like the United States, like England, look the other way, make believe that they didn't know what was happening in the concentration camps? Roosevelt knew full well. He bombed the outer perimeter of Auschwitz. He could have bombed the camps. He could have saved hundreds of thousands of Jews, but they looked the other way. So did I lose faith? Yes, I lost faith in man, but never for a moment did I lose faith in my God. My faith in God only intensified and became stronger. So who could imagine the, the soaring faith of these holy Jews? When I think of this, it gives me insight into the idea we say that Tishabav is considered a moed, we know even halachically, in a real sense, it's not just a figuratively, it's an actual moed. We don't say tachnon on Tishabav. We don't say tachnon mincha before Tishabav. It has certain halachic status of a yomtif. What exactly are we celebrating? And I think to myself, we're celebrating the soaring spirit, the, the bottomless, infinite faith of these holy Jews who have uh, endured the gullus and endured the tragedies of the Gullahs, and yet emerge with such ironclad faith in Akash, but we're celebrating the Emuna of Klal Yisrael. That's certainly worthy of, of celebration and commemoration. Um, another story that was printed was uh, when my grandfather was liberated, you see the Germans realized the Americans were coming, the Russians were coming, so they packed uh, many of the concentration camp survivors onto cattle cars. They packed them like animals. And the conditions on these cars were inhumane, were, were unbearable. The heat, 
the people had a people had to perform bodily functions in the cattle cars. The the smell, the that people were vomiting, retching, the heat, no no nothing to eat, nothing to drink. I read an account that um, the Jews were so hot and famished, and they were just passing out one after another. They said they, that they had a rabbi on the cattle car who at midnight uh, cried out, Jews, let us say vidui and die, sing the Shema Yisrael. This rabbi was Rabbi Mordechai Gladstein, my grandfather. And then in parentheses, it says, somehow Rabbi Gladstein survived the war. So and this, this is the conditions we're speaking of. And all of a sudden, they hear bombing, and they realize Americans were coming. And the next thing they know, the train stops, and they, they're out of the car. And the Germans coming come running after um, come coming running to them, and the Germans take off their army uniforms. They give it to the prisoners, and the Germans put on the prisoners' garb because they they want to masquerade as um, Jewish inmates. But when the Americans came, they weren't duped by the scheme because the Germans were fat hogs. They were robust, and the Jews were walking cadavers. They were skeletons, and my grandfather. Was liberated by the American general George Henning, um, General Henning Linden. And the general gave my grandfather uh, his pistol. He said, Rabbi, here, the Red Cross isn't here yet. The, Amer- the uh, international community is not here yet. Here, take the gun, take revenge against the enemy. And my grandfather said, Revenge. In five years since I've been uh, reunited with my Gemara, Masechta Baba Basra, I'm in the middle of Masechta Baba Basra. Now I'm free, I'm reunited with my Gemara, and I leave revenge to the Rebbe Shalom. So this is the type of uh, spirit soaring uh, personality that we're dealing with. Wow, Yeshua Hashem Kaharavayim. It could happen in a minute. Could you tell us a little bit about the biography? That about by your grandfather, what's called the uh, Russia's Gulas Mordechai? Yeah, so actually, this is not as well known. So, we have this just came out the uh, Darkness and the Dawn. So, it might be if you still have time on Tishabov, you still have a few hours left, you could get it. Um, but this is sort of more for the family or for those who knew my grandfather. It's a collection of his writings, his memoirs. It's interesting after the war. He was a writer for the predecessor of uh, Dossier de Shavart. Dossier de Shavart was the Aguda journal that um, existed for many years. It was in Yiddish. Uh, the editor was also a famous survivor, Rabbi Yassela Friedensen. And the predecessor of Dossier de Shavart was something called Der Freivart, the free word. And it was actually, I believe, written in Polish. And I have articles here that my grandfather wrote in Polish right after the war. And I have over here my grandfather's smichas from before the war. But I think what's what's relevant to us, um, living 75 years later, is to recognize that these Jews who, they came out of the war famished. I mean, they couldn't eat. But by my grandfather's levaya, my grandfather survived the war with a brother of his. We called him Uncle Hanach. He was our great uncle. And my grandfather... Before the war, he was considered an Eloi. He went to the Yeshiva in Plotsk. He was called the Eloi from Plotsk. His brother, Hainach, like in most families, one boy would go to Yeshiva. The other, um, B'nai Mishpacha, would work, help the parents in the, in the store. They would learn for a few years 
in the cheder, but after that, maybe 12, 13, they would, they would work. There was no, not only wasn't there base medrash learning, there wasn't really high school. Everybody would work unless somebody was an exceptional Eloi. And my grandfather, who was a, a rav before the war, and his brother, who was a, a regular laborer, were together all the years. And at my grandfather's levaya, Uncle Hanuch's son, Chaim, who is a Talmud Chacham Muflag today, and um, he came to Levaya with all of his children, and he said that his uncle, my grandfather, Uncle Mordecha, he saved his father's life. Why? Because after the war, the American army came, and they threw to the survivors um, all kinds of food, baked goods, meat. And my grandfather told his brother, Hanuch, we can't eat it. It's not kosher. And Hanuch said, well, what do you mean it's not kosher? Well, what, 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 what have we been eating for the last five years? And my grandfather said, okay, that was then when our life were, was in peril and we were in Sakonis Nefashis. Now we're free. We can't eat that anymore. And all the other survivors ate and they all died because their bodies could not digest the, comp- the complex carbs and complex proteins. And after the war, they couldn't eat anything more than just clear soup. And many died after the war just from bloating, from, from excessive eating. So the, these people, they survived the war, but they were physically emaciated. They were mentally scarred. How could you not be mentally, emotionally scarred? But you see how quickly they dusted themselves off and they picked themselves up and they became active and they rebuilt their lives and they started families and they didn't wallow in self-pity. You know, today, <laughs> how often somebody... He can't get himself together because the second grade Rebbe gave him a bad look and he's still wallowing in, in self-pity. And we have to realize that we've been through much more difficult circumstances in our collective history. And the derech of Klal Yisrael is, as soon as there's a reprieve, we have to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, get off the ground, and uh, plan for the future and build for the future. My grandfather... Um, he knew English before the war. Besides being a rough before the war, he also had some kind of PhD or doctorate in um, secular studies. So he knew English. And when he was liberated, the American army gave him uh, here, here in actually in the art scroll book also, but here's a picture of him in his army uniform. And they gave him a Jeep. And in that capacity, he brought into all the DP camps, um, Sidurim, Sfarim. He published the first Sfarim in the DP camps. He built yeshivas, he built mikvahs in the DP camps, he was a Masader Kedushin, uh, he, he would go around saying, we have to recontinue and rebuild Jewish life the way it was, we don't have the, we don't have the luxury to sit around in self-pity. What's interesting is, I once saw from Rav Simcha Wasserman that uh, when Noyach came out of the Teva, basically that's a similar situation to post-Holocaust activities, he comes out, he sees a world destroyed, and what's the first thing he does? He uh, plants a vineyard. And, and Noyach is criticized. Chazal say, He should have planted something else. And Noyach is criticized that the first thing he planted was a vineyard. And Rav Simcha asked, what's wrong with what Noyach did? After all, it says in Mishlei, You give alcoholic beverage to the embittered. He came out, he saw the world destroyed. It was very demoralizing, it was very depressing. He needed to console himself. What, what, what was wrong with what Noyach did that he uh, 
wanted to dr drink the, the wine of consolation. And Rav Simcha Wasserman says that, no, that was incorrect. Because that's not how one should react to Chorben, to tragedy, to disaster. Noyach should have planted grain. He should have planted food to rebuild for the future. It is not the derech that, that Hashem wants of us to continually wallow in self-pity, to memorialize for decades and decades and decades every last um, every last Kadois who, who was destroyed in the Holocaust. Of course, we remember and we memorialize and we'll never forget, but that's not the main focus. The main focus has to be, okay, it is what it is. This is what we endured. This is what we suffered and we'll never forget it. But our focus has to be getting off the ground, picking ourselves up and building for the future. I always like to think we have this, um, I think, rather uh, strange custom on Tishabav that here it is for three weeks, we don't take a haircut and the nine days come and we don't eat meat and we don't bathe and we don't wander. It's like uh, we're Avelim. And then Erev Tishabav, it's like Mesai Muta Lafanov. And Tishabav here, it's the, it's like the Levaya itself. And middle of the day, okay, let's call it a day. 12 o'clock, we get off the ground, we jump off the floor. I mean, this is what it's all leading up to and we're already jumping up and jumping off the floor. But the answer is, that's we have no alternative. The focus cannot be just wallowing in self-misery. The focus is, okay, what do we do now? We got to get off the floor on Tisha B'Av, roll up our sleeves, and uh, plan for the future. Beautiful. Could you leave uh, the audience with some practical tips of today's days? You know, not, not everybody is so connected to the what happened to the war. Today, people... Baruch Hashem, life is amazing. And you talk about the three weeks, the nine days, and then Tisha B'Av. Sometimes it's hard for people to connect. What's something practical that we can do? Yeah, so I think a practical perspective, uh, there's a, an anecdote that Rabbi Berylwein says over, that when he made Aliyah, he moved to Israel. So he had to get a new driver's license. So he took the test and... Uh, the instructor is not supposed to say how you did. He just says, pass or fail. So the instructor said, Rabbi, you passed. By the way, you're a pretty good driver. So Rabbi Wine wasn't sure what warranted that comment. So he said, what, what about my driving impressed you? He said, see, most people, they just pull out of the spot and they don't look in the rear view mirror to see if anyone's coming. Before you pulled out, you looked in the rear view mirror. And I want to say that's a very important mashal. How many of us, we just wake up in the morning and we think that Jewish life began in Lakewood in 2017. That's where it all started. Or it began in the five towns. Or it began in Brooklyn and Flatbush and Borough Park. And it began in Schreiber's Bakery and the pizza store. And our, our perspective of Judaism becomes very narrow. And we forget that it's our grandparents and our parents and what they endured. And that, think about it, the likelihood of being a Jew, you know the famous comment of Rabbi Yaakov Emden. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, you know, people say, if only I would see a miracle, like the splitting of the sea, then I would have really a tremendous amuna. Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, for us to be here today, it's not highly improbable. It's not statistically unlikely. It's downright impossible for to look, to go into shul today. 
and to see a Jew putting on talis and tefillin. The likelihood of that is, is impossible to survive Mitzrayim. Eight out of 10 Jews died in Mitzrayim. To survive Chorban Bayis Rishon, Chorban Bayisheni, to survive crusades, pogroms, inquisition, Holocaust, and then just to wake up in 2021 and say, yeah, Jewish life is pretty good. It is important for us to have some recognition that we are all survivors. And if we are survivors, we have to ask ourselves, so why did we survive? Why are we still here while the likelihood of us being here is almost impossible? What does Rebun Shom want from me? Why did Hashem save my grandfather from the Holocaust? Why did he save my great-great-grandfather from World War I? Why did he save my ancestor from Chalmanitsky pogroms? Why did he save, save my ancient descendant from Mitzrayim? He, I guess he wanted me. He wanted me. Gladstein, sitting here in the five towns. He wanted Rabbi Bernstein in Lakewood. He wanted Yankel in Barra Park. He wanted Yankel's Amen Yehishmei Rabba. He wanted Beryl's five minutes of Lima Atoira. He wanted Mrs. Friedman's Hafrashas Chala. He wanted her Hadlakas Neiros. Why her and not somebody else? We don't know. We don't know why. But one thing we know is that if we're here in 2021, and if we're still alive and kicking, that means the Shalom has invested in us and there is something about us that the Shalom needs us to bring the Mashiach, not anybody else. And therefore, it's a very empowering thought. On the one hand, we think of ourselves so low, what am I? compared to earlier generations, my Yerushalayim, it doesn't match up, my Limanat Torah doesn't match up, my Kavana doesn't match up. But on the other hand, we are God's longest term investment he's ever made. Never in the history of the creation of the world has the Shalom invested in anything longer than a Yid who's alive today. And therefore, it is very encouraging. And it is my humble bracha to... Menachem, to all of our listeners, thank you everybody for giving me the opportunity to share a few thoughts with you. It's my humble bracha that we should recognize the interest Hashem has in us and the investment Hashem has made in us and in our families and the longing Hashem has to hear from us, to accept our mitzvahs, to value our mitzvahs, and just to give every maizah mitzvah we do that extra degree of attention and to think the master, the creator of the universe has invested in me for 3,300 years just so I could perform this mitzvah and the Yibam Shem could cherish it and elevate it and put it on his crown and Be'ezus Hashem use everything that we all do to bring Mashiach ever so closer. And may we taka obizoicha. We've definitely suffered enough. And I think all it's going to take is we have to all turn to Rebun Shalom and say, Rebun Shalom, you know what? We really want it already. The Gemara Darshans, Sion he, doiresh einla. Sion, nobody seeks it out, says the Gemara, Meklal deboi drisha. From here we see, you have to seek it out. So ask so how do you seek out Sion? If that's all it takes, how do you seek it out? Says Reb Chaim, you seek it out by being toiveya it. We have to turn to Yubanisham and say, Nat, Yubanisham, 
And if not, okay, they're not. No, we have to turn to them and say, Kasha You told us, you gave us your word. We have to be toiveyat. May respond to our uh, our tevia in the affirmative. And Bezos Hashem, Coach Menachem, next year we should be Coach Menachem on the Yom of uh, the ninth of Av. Thank you so much. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.